This message was presented at the Amen Missions 2017 Bible Conference, Shaken But Not Forsaken, in Cape Town, South Africa. For more resources like this, visit us at www.amen-missions.co.za. Amen. Advent message to every nation. Matthew chapter 27. We're going to start at verse 15. Matthew chapter 27, starting at verse 15. This weekend is going to be a weekend where I share a lot of my testimony, um, and not just um, the testimony I give tomorrow in Sabbath school and I'm going to expound on in the breakout session tomorrow. Um, but I'll be giving a lot of testimony about myself um, as a way to prayerfully um, introduce you to Christ, um, if not for the first time again. Matthew 27 and verse 15 says, Now at the feast the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner, whom they would. And they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore when they, gathered, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will you that I release unto you? Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? Who do you want me to release to you? Do you want Jesus, who's called Christ, or do you want Barabbas? Our message tonight is entitled, Choosing Revolution choosing revolution. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to study your word. I ask once again, Father God, that you make me just a nail upon the wall, a rusty, sorry nail, Lord. But upon that nail, dear God, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. Let Eric Walsh not be seen or heard, for he is no one and he is nothing. Instead, Father God, let us hear a word from the throne room of grace. Is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. And the church say amen. amen. So we go in the book of Matthew to the 27th chapter again, going back to verse 11. The Bible says, and Jesus stood before the governor. Jesus stood before the governor. Jesus had gone through a terrible ordeal. If you're a Christian, this ordeal should be the theme of your study. Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and asks his disciples to pray with him. And the scripture tells us that his exhausted disciples fall asleep. There in the garden, Christ is so under the weight of sin and stress that the, that the Son of God, the living Son of God, begins to sweat. And when he sweats, blood begins to come from his brow. As he is there in the darkness of night in the Garden of Gethsemane, on his knees, on his face, agonizing with the Father as what has become of him and what is to become of him, Jesus lays there calling on the name of God. As he does, the soldiers are heard coming from the distance, the rattle of their spears, their swords, and their shields as they come down the path into the garden looking for the one who is called Christ. I can imagine that when they find Jesus, he is laying there praying while the others are laying there sleeping. And they have to figure out who's who. As Jesus and the disciples jump to their feet and, and turn and begin to deal with the high priest and the army that he has brought to, to bear on Christ, as Jesus has to deal with that, one of his own steps forward Judas Iscariot is his name, and he plants a kiss on the cheek of Christ. And with that kiss, he betrays our Lord. An interesting part of the story, before we get into where we're going tonight, is that as this happens, uh, the high priest servant uh, is standing there, and Peter Wanting to be brave, big and bad, willing to violently, don't miss this, violently defend our Lord. Draws his sword and swings for Malchus's head and instead of cutting him like he's supposed to, he, he misses and chops off his ear. It's part of your ear, it's called a pinna. It is, it is made uh, 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 out, of, uh, out, of, out of cartilage and so it's soft and the sharp blade of a sword takes the ear off and you can watch almost in slow motion as that pinna drops and hits the ground. Servant of the high priest 
probably grabs his side of his head and pulls away his hand and sees blood. Shock comes as he is now looking at having a part of his body taken from him. And in the middle of his capture, Jesus is so compassionate <laughs> that he stops the whole process of his abduction. Hold on, fellas. I got one more miracle in me before I go to the cross. Hold on. And Jesus reaches down and grabs the piece of the ear and he performs a, a, a surgery that does not require instruments. Come on, church. And Jesus reattaches the ear of the servant of the high priest, uh, the man who is coming to get him to remind the people who are capturing him that he is not a God of violence or revolution. Come on, church. In fact, instead, he is a healer of nations. I don't believe that high priest servant is ever the same. But they take Jesus, rough him up, slap him upside the back of his head, shackle him and drag him off to a kangaroo court. And they take him there and they find him guilty of, of all kinds of, of misconstrued, uh, uh, made up lies of, 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 of infractions against the Jewish people and against the Jewish law, and against the Jewish God. And, and Jesus is now in a, in, a, in a position where he is found worthy to die by the Jewish authority. The problem is the Passover is coming, Pasach in Hebrew is coming, and it is coming a time of a high Sabbath. They can't be involved with the murder of a man right before they try and deal with their own sins. The hypocrisy, of course, swells in the story as they now take him and hope that the secular authority, that the Roman oppressive regime will now deal with their Jesus problem for them. Enter Pilate into the story. Pilate's whole job, Caesar has, Caesar has Pilate on the scene for one reason. He is to quelch and slow down, stop and prevent revolution. His whole job. He is in Jerusalem because these Jews are a testy bunch of folk. And going back to the Maccabees, they are quick to jump up and fight. And it's because they have this book that tells them that God fights with them. And so they're quick to fight because they keep thinking that miracle is going to happen. The problem is, don't miss this, they have lost their prophetic heritage. And because they stopped understanding prophecy, they are looking for a Messiah that looks more like Mike Tyson than like the gentle Jesus who visits them. They were looking for a warrior when a healer was coming. And so he's taken, brought to stand before Pilate, the governor. The governor in verse 11 asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus' response is, thou sayest. And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. So you got to imagine he's standing there bound, probably by now bruised and beat up a little bit. Pilate, like everyone else in Jerusalem, has heard the stories of this man. And they know, and he, he himself, Pilate, is interested in who this guy is. He's heard it all. Jesus' head is in a position of humility. His gaze is the gaze of affection and care. He does not carry, the spirit of prophecy tells us, on his face any sign of a man who would cause any problem. Pilate is sizing him up over the shoulder of Jesus, behind him, uh, like a bunch of, 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 of children in a playground. They're jumping up and down. He did it. He did it. He did this, he did that, and they're snitching and running their mouth on Jesus. Jesus says nothing. Pilate says to him, verse 13, don't you hear how many things they witness against you? Can't you hear all the things they're saying about you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you no defense for yourself? 
The Bible says in verse 14 something profound. It says, and he answered him to never a word. Let me tell you something. The problem some of us have, and we'll talk about this in my testimony in the morning. The problem some of us have is we're too quick to defend ourselves. And the Bible says here, in so much that the governor, Pilate, marveled greatly. Pilate was a man who dealt with criminals all the time. And he knew what a criminal looked like. Jesus was something completely different. Pilate is standing there like, who is innocent and stands there and isn't yelling and screaming, I'm innocent. I was the medical director for the jails for Orange County, California, the county just south of Los Angeles. And we had five jails that I was over. And let me tell you something, one thing I learned about people in jail, ain't nobody guilty. <laughs> like, we say, like, we say, like we say down in the hood, everybody innocent. <laughs> Everybody is innocent. So you can imagine, Pilate is like, dude, say something. Pilate is marveling. So Pilate looks at it, and he realizes that, after, he remembers that the feast is coming, and there's an opportunity to get himself out of this bind. He's caught between a rock and a hard place. He, he really doesn't want innocent blood on his hands. In fact, his wife has a dream and warns him not to mess with Jesus of Nazareth. So he's, whew, he's been divinely warned that what he's stepping into is not a normal exchange between the Jews, Jewish authority and a criminal. He is warned that he's stepping into something supernatural and everlasting. So in verse 15, now at the feast of the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would, and they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? It gets interesting. It gets interesting. You see, this revolutionary spirit started at about the time when Jesus and Barabbas were born. It's an interesting thing. Around that time, about somewhere between uh, 2 B.C. and 4 A.D., a, a new wave of revolution and revolutionary thinking began to rise up in Israel. And they were trying to look at how they could. So Jesus and Barabbas are raised at a time when many are thinking it's time for a revolution. Now, I would believe that the reason that's happening is because Satan understands that God is about to do something incredible. He tried, remember, he, in, in, remember in, 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 in this Christmas story, he tries to kill all the little boys, trying to massacre the, the Messiah. That re, can you imagine how angry people are because of that? That is probably, the blood of those children probably feeds this revolutionary attitude. And so that Jesus and Barabbas are raised at a time when revolution is the norm. It is the thinking. In fact, if you read carefully the Gospels, you realize many of the disciples were actually revolutionaries. Y'all don't miss this thing. That's why they wanted to crown Jesus king, remember? They wanted to force him to be king because they were thinking, wait a minute, we can't lose a war with this dude on our team. Somebody get cut up, we just heal him. We run out of food, he just start breaking fish and bread. We have food forever. We can't lose a war with this dude on our team. King that man. There's a reason these people were so upset. And unless you understand this, you don't understand human nature and how history flows and, and why the church has to be very careful. You see, the reality is the revolutionaries had a point. Don't miss this. Follow me. The truth is, if you study, it is a reason in Daniel chapter 2 that the Roman Empire is represented as the strongest muscles in the body, the thighs of the legs and the calves of the legs. Those are the strongest, the, the prophecies go, it carries all, the analogy carries all the way out. There's a reason it's iron. Because iron legs, the power of iron legs do what? They can crush. When the Romans came on the scene, it was annihilation. They weren't sophisticated like the Babylonians who would take Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego captive, feed them some right food and play them the right music and give them some other names and then send them back to rule their own country. No, kill them all. If they rose up, the Romans were going to take you off the set. That was Rome. So there were people who were living 
under intense and terrible oppression, massacres, slaughters, the equivalent of their police would stop them and beat them and harass them and even kill them for no good reason at all. That's why Jesus says the words, when they slap you, turn the other cheek. That's why he says, if they ask for your coat, give them your shawl also. If they tell you to walk with them a mile, walk with them two miles. That was, <laughs> that was anti-revolutionary speech by Christ. He was saying, if you're going to win on this earth, your modus operandi, the way you function to change the world, can't be the way the world tries to change the world. But if you don't get that it was oppressive, that people were angry, people had a right to want to fight. There's a reason Jesus, huh, there's a reason Jesus spent time in the houses of the least respected people in society. It was because Jesus wanted to have a connection with those folk so that he knew those folk. You know the problem with some of us when we go to do ministry? We try to minister folk we've never even sat with. That is not the Christ model. If you want to minister to someone, let me let, me let you in on a secret. And I know some of you, this is going to be heresy, but play a game of basketball with them. Kick a ball around with them a little bit. Run around with them a little bit. Eat with them a little bit. Let me tell you what happens. You can build a relationship. And if you follow Jesus, you notice when Jesus had children, he wasn't scolding them. The Bible says, look, bring the children unto me. Why? He was building a relationship with the community from its base level. And he was often with the people in society everyone said was horrible, despicable, and detestable. If you're going to do ministry, you better interact with the folk everyone else has marginalized. Because if you try and have a selective ministry, it will not be productive. That's why I was glad today when I was taken to the, where, where, where did we go? Anova Park. And we went into the, to the flats. Yeah, that's not an English, that's not an American word, the flats. And Tracy and, and her husband brought us there and, 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 our, and my host went with us. And let me tell you something, we went in there and we ministered to, to gangsters, former gangsters. Went into, what's it called, Joy Farm, Camp Joy and went into one of the flats and prayed with a family. And let me tell you something. I got more from the family than I think I could give them. Oh, y'all missing this thing. You know why you interact with folk? Because if all you do is watch them from a distance, all you see are their defects. In order to see people's good side, sometimes you gotta get kinda close to them. It might not be all that attractive from a distance. You get up close, you say, well, you know, actually them cheekbones ain't so bad after all. <laughs> and let me tell you something, the woman of the house, holding down the fort for three generations, when she began to give the testimony of who she was and how she did what she did, how she brought prayer into that house, how she held up a spiritual, a spiritual model for her children. I was, let me tell you, I was like, you should be praying for me. I'm not, I shouldn't be praying for you. Let me tell you that if the church in South Africa is really going to move forward, like the church in America, you're going to have to go into the space that is not comfortable. You're not going to, you can't allow society to tell you who you belong with or where you're supposed to eat, or who you're supposed to sit with. Because if society tells you that, the devil controls how you minister. They had a right to be upset based on what was going on in society at the time. Roman slavery was some of the most brutal slavery in recorded history. And even modern days, we still have oppression. So watch this. There are still people who have a right to be angry. You have a right to be angry. In my country, police brutality is a major problem. I've had multiple friends that we've buried because the police killed them. And that was before all of the hoopla you see on the internet now. The poverty seems to always tilt in one direction. 
I've traveled the world, it seems always tilt in the direction of the darkest people. It's quick to offer folks second-class citizenship and accept it. The church can't do that. And of course, there's all the other things that go along with it. I won't get into that, but I'll show you this slide, that oppression often breeds revolution. And the problem with that is that then you get movements that rise up. And some of the movements of today, because they feel they're justified in rebelling, are disconnecting a generation from the church. Let me tell you something. Um, the American Civil Rights Movement was a movement out of the church. The current movements are movements that decidedly want the church to have nothing to do with them. And you know why that's allowable? Because the church was silent when injustice was being done. So, in order to get the story right, you got to get all of that. Because once you understand all of that, you understand Barabbas. Barabbas was a revolutionary. He had Jewish rebellion ideology that started around the time of the birth of Christ. His name, Bar-Abbas, means son of the father. And in many or some ancient texts, it actually says his first name was Yahshua. His name was Yahshua Bar-Abbas, Jesus, son of the father. That was his name. Can you imagine when Barabbas is... Uh, starts his re rebellion, his name sounds like a messianic name. Yahshua means that God will deliver. It goes back to the story of Joshua in the Old Testament. Can you imagine as he begins his rebellion, there are folk who say, that's the Messiah. He's it. The Bible describes him, though. The Bible describes him in John 18. It says, Barabbas was a robber. He used crime to try and make his point. Matthew 27, 16 says, and they had then a notable prisoner. His name was Barabbas. He wasn't just a robber. He was a famous robber, like Billy the Kid in the United States and all the outlaws of the West. He was famous. People idolized him in his criminality. Oh, y'all missing this thing. Like how some of us now idolize these thug wannabe rappers. They idolized him. And in Luke 23 and verse 19, it says that Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder, was cast into prison. Sedition. He was a rebel rouser. He was the one going around making all the noise, inciting everybody else to want to fight. And in the process, people were killed. Blood was on Barabbas' hands. Mark 15, 7 says, And there was one named Barabbas which lay bound with them uh, that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. Now, Pilate is thinking, there is no way, when these guys know my job, they know my whole purpose in Jerusalem is to keep the peace. There's no way, as all the favors I do these guys, that they're going to ask me to let Barabbas loose, who is completely against why I'm in Jerusalem, and this Jesus guy who's never killed anybody, in fact, for what Pilate has heard, Jesus is actually bringing folk back from the dead. He's an anti-murderer. An unmurderer, A reverse murderer? I don't know. He has the So Pilate is thinking, okay, I know they don't like this guy, but they couldn't dare be asking me to let loose a revolutionary when they know my whole job is to stop revolutions. That's what his confidence going into this. But Barabbas had a powerful charisma. And here's the problem. Sometimes what you can justify is still not justifiable. Sometimes the fact that you've been done wrong and you can justify retaliation, the Christian ethics and rules say you still have no right to go back at the person the way they came at you. Oh, let's talk Christianity now. You see, because I was Barabbas. I was Barabbas. I was raised in a country where racial tensions have been high. I remember one of my first memories of, of racial prejudice. I was probably about 12 years old. I lived in the North where there's much less racial prejudice. So if you go to the New England area, New York, 
Pennsylvania. The Northerners in America gave up slavery earlier and got, kind of got along better. You went to California, they got along even better. They were too busy eating granola and being hippies, so you know, they kind of were more peaceful. I hope that doesn't make the tape. Um, <laughs> but I didn't grow up in a racially tense place. It, it existed, but we got along. My friends were white, they were, we called them wasps, actually. White Anglo-Saxon Protestants. There was a name for everybody, Puerto Ricans, Jews, Italians, Polish people. Um, there were West Indian blacks, American blacks. And we all played together, lived together, traded comic books, everything. But when I would go in the summertime to visit my, my relatives in the South, in Florida, I saw a whole other world. One night we were coming back from a, um, from a party. I was 12, so don't judge me too hard. And I went with my cousin, and we were running back from the party, because. Some people down south, they like to just run for no good reason. So we were running back. That's why they make such good athletes. And we were running back. And as we're running past the 7-Eleven, a black family pulls in in a big like, Chevy Impala. I actually never knew where the name Impala came from until I came to Africa and saw an Impala. So, don't judge me. Um, and, and so they pull up in a Chevy Impala, which is like a boat, literally. My mother had one. And there's a family of like four or five kids, a husband, a wife. The guy gets out of the car, black man, goes out the car to go into the store to get something while the mother stays in the car with the kids. Just then, a pickup truck full of rednecks, we call them, probably you don't have that term here, racists pull up, and they have a, what we call a Molotov cocktail, you probably call them petrol bombs, and they, the, the guy comes out of the truck, lights it as the woman and the children are in the car, as my cousin and I are watching lights it and throws it under the car, and boom! I was so afraid. I was running after that. I ran all the way back home. I didn't even breathe. I just was running. And I remember seeing the, 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 the man come out of the store screaming and yelling and trying to chase the truck down and realizing he had to go back and make sure the car didn't explode. When we moved to Miami finally, and I was bust from a predominantly West Indian part of town um, next to one of the black American neighborhoods and bust up to one of the best schools in the United States. To this day, one of the top 50 high schools is the high school I went to in, 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 in Florida, one of the top 50 in the whole country. And when I, would go, when I went to school, the first day I went into class, when I looked up on the wall in the bathroom over the sink, there was a picture of an ape. And there was a noose around its neck, which is a symbol of lynching, which is a strong American heritage in the Deep South and during slavery and after slavery. And it said, N-words, go back to Africa. That was my introduction to the school. They called me the N-word so much that I'm telling you, every time they did, I should have put $5 in a savings account. I'd be rich now. <laughs> it was horrible. I'd sit in class and they'd tell me how um, inferior black people inherently are. The teachers, the students, and I was the only black kid in the class. I became Barabbas. I was so angry by the end of it all. I was so tired of being called names, so tired of my people being talked bad about. I was so angry at what they can continually did. I was sick and tired of it. Now, by the time I left to go to college, I went to Oakwood University, the all-black Adventist school in the States. Well, used to be all-black. Now we're more mixed. Things are getting better. Um, I went to that school, and they, they, people to this day, folk don't know my name. To this day, they call me Malcolm X. They don't even know my name. <laughs> I go went back to alumni. Brother Stig, yo, X, what's up, man? <laughs> Angry. My roommate and I, who was from New York, we actually brought in the first minister from the Nation of Islam, which is Louis Farrakhan's group, into Huntsville, Alabama. And the mosque that was started there was started because we brought the minister in. We were so angry, so mad that the Adventist school wouldn't support us in our rebellious ways. I stayed with it. God worked on me while I was at Oakwood. Men like E.E. E. Cleveland and their great sermons about the civil rights movement and the need to understand of nonviolent protest and why Christianity was so important to the movement, it helped. But I continued to hang on just a little too much. When I went to medical school, one Sabbath, uh, Professor, uh, well, the minister, Louis Farrakhan, who some of you may know who he is, the leader of the Nation of Islam, was um, speaking at the Miami Arena. And I decided after church, after lunch, to 
drive down to the Miami Arena with a couple of my friends, two young ladies who were in, I think they were both in law school at the time, and I was gonna go sit with them. I was in medical school, and we were gonna sit and hear Farrakhan speak. At one time, I was on his national committee to stop the violence, and I would get special seating when I went to Nashville and heard him, and in Atlanta and heard him. So I was very comfortable. I hadn't been doing that for a while, and I was in medical school, but I went. And he started to speak, and he's an amazing orator. I don't know, the, the people who hate people often are great orators. I don't know why that is. Um, and when I sat in there, he said something profound. He says, the black man is the original man. And everybody starts clapping. And I said, okay. He says, and I can prove it. He says, 66 trillion years ago. I said, 66 trillion with a T? I mean, even the evolutionists stop at a billion, bro, a trillion? 66 trillion years ago, he says the black man blew the moon off of the earth with dynamite. What? Dino what? The Chinese invented dynamite like 3,000 years ago. What are you talking about? And he said, I can prove it. And I, now people are jumping up, clapping. People get all excited. You know, let me tell you something. The devil knows how to push your button. He will push the card of your racial, ethnic pride in order to get a demonic response. By now, folk are jumping up, clapping. I'm sitting there confused. <laughs> Befuddled is the word. And then... He says, I can prove it. He says, because when the astronauts went to the moon, they could still smell the dynamite. <laughs> what in the world? All you need is a fifth grade education. And you know, the only thing the astronauts smelled on the moon, they brought with them from Houston, Texas. You can't breathe moon air, man. You'll be a dead man in outer space. Right there on the spot, I repented. Right there on the spot, God removed the scales from my eyes, completely this time. And I saw all of a sudden that the most dangerous thing you can do, if you're white, black, or colored. And I don't know if there's any other classifications down here, so if I missed you, I'm sorry. The worst thing you can do is to begin to believe that somehow, inherently, the pigment of your skin makes you better than someone else. Once you begin to believe that, you have opened up a wedge for satanic forces to begin to indoctrinate you in such a way that you will lose sight of who Jesus is. If you don't get the understanding that the Bible says man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Let me ask you something. When you see people, do you try to see their heart? Or do you simply judge them based on what you can see? I repented. And I began to realize that I had fallen into dark deceit because I was trying to justify pride. And all of a sudden it became clear. All of a sudden it began to be obvious that what God calls us to do is to reach people for Jesus Christ. Race and racism, as painful as you may have experienced it, racism or reverse racism, it exists by the devil to separate the people of God. And I repented. So I was Barabbas. Pilate now, verse 13, called the chief priests and the rulers and the people together and said unto them, you have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people. And behold, I have examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof ye accuse him. In order for when God's character is looked at, that's a big part of the great controversy is the judging of God's character. One thing that the enemy will not be able to say, that the detractors of, the, of Jesus cannot say, is that he had a fair trial. Because a neutral third party in Pilate says Jesus was innocent. He doesn't just say it once either. In fact, he says, 
Herod, who was his enemy. You know Herod and Pilate became friends because they both met Jesus? Oh, y'all missing this thing. They became cool again because both of them met Jesus. If Pilate and Herod can be cool because they met Jesus, I think we should be cool after we meet Jesus. He says, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him. He didn't deserve to be beaten and chastised. And release him. For of a necessity, he must release one unto them at the feast. So he wasn't even going to ask them who they want released. Here they begin to cry aloud at once, saying, Away with this man, and release unto us Bar-Abbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. Pilate, therefore willing to release Jesus, spake again unto them. He says, listen, the, the guy's innocent. You, you, you got to let this man go. But they cried, saying, crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, three times, why, what evil has he done? I find no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and do what? Let him go. Pilate wanted to release Jesus, but he had to convince them that Jesus was innocent. But something changes in the story right here in verse 23. And they were instant with loud voices, requiring that he must, might be crucified. The Bible says that they are instant in loud voices. The Spirit of Prophecy tells us that at some juncture, the demons begin to chant with them. The Spirit of Prophecy tells us that Satan was there. And <laughs> that at a point, the demons begin to scream with them. I believe that when it says they were instant in voice, that something supernatural began to happen. And the voices of them and the chief priest prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Let me tell you something. Anytime you decide not to deliver your will to Jesus, but deliver Jesus to your will, catastrophe is going to happen. Your will must be delivered to Christ. Because a lot of us, what we do is we take Jesus and we deliver him to our will so we can get and do what we want. The spirit of prophecy says it like this. Pilate then took his place on the judgment seat and again presented Jesus to the people saying, behold, your king. Again, the mad cry was heard, away with him, crucify him. In a voice that was heard far and near, Pilate asked, shall I crucify your king? But from profane, blasphemous lips went forth the words, We have no king but Caesar. She says, Thus, by choosing a heathen ruler, the Jewish nation had withdrawn from the theocracy. They had rejected God as their king. Henceforth, they had no deliverer. They had no king but Caesar. To this uh, the priests and teachers had led the people, watch this, for this, with the fearful result that followed, they were responsible. Ha, a nation's sin and a nation's ruin were due to the religious leaders. There's so much I can say about that. As we go into the last times, and we're going to talk about, I'll talk about this in my testimony a little bit tomorrow. You're going to have to be anchored in Jesus Christ. Because if you're anchored in people, if you've created Adventist celebrities for yourself, and this preacher and that preacher, and you, you all you know, swoon and feign when you see these people, and then if they fail, if they fall, your, shake is, your faith is shaken, nations will be destroyed. Because the people who are given the task of leading the nation morally, and in a direction towards Christ, fail their charge. This whole story is a symbol for the last days as well. She says it this way. The scene in the judgment hall in Jerusalem is a symbol of what will take place in the closing scenes of earth's history. The world will accept Christ, the truth, or they will accept Satan, the first great rebel, a robber, apostate, and murderer. They will either reject the message of mercy in regard to the commandments of God and faith of Jesus, or they will accept the truth as it is in Jesus. If they accept Satan 
and his falsehoods, they identify themselves with the chief of all liars and with all who are disloyal, while they turn from no less a personage than the son of the infinite God. Church, you have only two choices. Either you choose Christ or you choose revolution. The spirit of revolution that's sweeping across the world, it's not of God. The violent protests all over the United States and even here, it's not of God. That is Satan's way of sweeping the world into chaos and anarchy because he knows, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12, it says, beware unto you um, inhabitants of the earth and the sea. Why do you need to be aware? Why do you need to be careful? Because Satan has been cast down among you and he knows he has what? A short time. It's deep. The devil is functioning like he has a little bit of time and we function as if we got all the time in the world. I'm going to give you three perspectives and we're done. The per first perspective in the story, because I like to put you in the story, is that you are in the crowd. You're in the crowd as Jesus has Pilate, uh, Pilate, sorry, has Jesus and Barabbas in front of you. A week earlier, you were crying and singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. Today, you're crying, crucify him, crucify him. Watch this. Some of us go to church on Sabbath and sing Hosanna, and on Monday, by our behavior, we're crying, crucify him, crucify him. You're in the audience. You're in the crowd. You have an opportunity to cry for Jesus to be set free, or you can live your life as if you live under the banner of Barabbas. That's the first perspective. The second perspective is you're next to Pilate. You're standing next to Pilate. You are Barabbas. Why? Because you are guilty and Christ is innocent. So guess what? I did sin. I have sinned. I am deserving of the cross. Oh, don't miss this thing. My life has made me worthy of death. The wages of sin is death. I have lived so that I can die, so that I should die. But Jesus is willing. <laughs> he has already taken my place. He took the punishment I deserve so that I could have the life he deserves. It's one of the greatest flip-flops in the history of the universe. You get what he deserves if you follow him. But the other part of this is, if you follow Christ, you're going to be treated as Christ was treated. We'll talk more about that in the, in the testimony tomorrow. But the spirit of prophecy says, Christ will be represented in the person of those who accept the truth and who identify their interests with that of their Lord. The world will be enraged at them in the same way that the, they were enraged at Christ. And the disciples of Christ will know that they are to be treated no better than was their Lord. But Christ will surely identify his interest with, those, with, with that of those who accept him as their personal savior. Every insult, every reproach, Every false accusation made against them by those who have turned their ears away from the truth and are turned unto fables will be charged upon the guilty ones as done to Christ in the person of his saints. When they persecute you, it is going to be as if they were persecuting Christ. There's one more perspective. You're Pilate. You're standing between the truth and the liar. You're standing there. You are Pilate. And your job is to convince the world that Jesus deserves to be set free in their lives. That the devil is the one who should be bound and cast out. Our job is what Pilate's job. Pilate failed at his job. In fact, he died a miserable death because he didn't heed his wife's warning. Your job, like Pilate, is to make the world know that Jesus is the innocent healer. He is the king of the Jews. He is the Messiah that has come. It is not Yahshua, uh, son of Barabbas, uh, 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 Barabbas, son of the father. It is Jesus the Christ. You notice when Pilate says it, he says, who do you want me to let loose for you? Yahshua Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? Are you telling other folk that they need to let Jesus loose in their lives? 
that he needs to be active and living in their daily lives? Or like Pilate, are you failing your charge? Spirit of Prophecy says it like this, when the world is at last brought up for trial before the great white throne to account for its rejection of Jesus Christ, God's own messenger to our world, what a solemn scene it will be. What a reckoning will have to be made for nailing to the cross one who came to our world as a living epistle of the law. God will ask each one the question, what have you done with my only begotten son? What have you done with my son? Everybody that faces the judgment is going to have to answer that question. She says, what will those answer who have refused to accept the truth? They will be obliged to say, we hated Jesus and cast him out. We cried, crucify him, crucify him. We chose Barabbas in his stead. If those to whom the light of heaven is presented reject it, they reject Christ. You only have two options. You can choose revolution. Now, choosing revolution doesn't mean that we don't do good in this world, that we don't have ministries that reach the poor, that we don't have ministries that feed the poor. It doesn't mean that we aren't socially active agents that are improving the quality of people's lives. That is the example Christ gave us. We're not the ones tearing down governments, burning up stuff, kicking over stuff, shooting up stuff. We are the agents and the representatives of a whole different kingdom. And yes, right now, your nationality might be from South Africa and mine might be from the United States of America. But guess what? Your passport is transparent. It's flimsy. It's temporary. You see, written in my heart is a covenant and a promise from God. And that passport is the passport that will one day allow chariots of fire to come and get me. And guess what? It is to that passport I am most loyal. Not to any earthly nation or kingdom. One of my favorite sermon stories is the sermon story of the Armenian earthquake. I was reading about earthquake, 8.2 Richter uh, scale earthquake today in Mexico. And we ought to be praying for those folks. Pray for my family. I have my extended families in Miami. Pray for them as this hurricane barrels down upon them. These natural disasters are going to become more common. It's a sign that Jesus is about to return. The people of God ought not get panicked. We ought to know what's coming upon us. Men's heart will fail them for fear. Ours heart, our hearts should not. But in this story, a little boy named Armand, as he's getting ready for school that morning, sees his dad rushing to get out of the house and decides he wants his father to take him to school. The little boy runs, upside, runs beside his dad as his dad is about to leave the house. and says, Daddy, will you take me to school today? The father says, Son, I'm busy. I got to hurry up. I need to get where I need to go. The little boy pleads, Daddy, please, please, please drop me off to school. Father says, All right, hurry up. Get your stuff. Let's go. Father walks a mile a minute. The little boy runs up behind him, so proud his daddy's taking him to school. And they get to the school building. The father's in a rush, so he's about to run off and leave the boy. The little boy says, Wait, Daddy, wait. Amon says, hold on, Daddy. Daddy, I want you to promise me that you're going to come back and get me. The father says, son, I got a busy day. The time isn't right. The little boy says, please, Daddy, come promise me. And the father, in order to expedite the time, says, look, I promise. I'll be back to get you, but I got to go now. The father runs off to his job, and he gets to the factory where he works, or the building where he works. And as the father is there, a massive earthquake hits Armenia. Building begins to shake. Light fixtures begin to fall. People begin to panic and scream. They run out of the building into the street. The father runs out behind them into the street. And as he looks around, the city is beginning to crumble. Buildings are beginning to fall. Glass is broken. And he realizes that this is a very serious earthquake. And he has left his son at school. <laughs> and he's going to go back and get him. Father runs back across town. People are screaming, bleeding, problems everywhere. But he gets to the building where his, he left his son that morning, and it is a pile of rubble. 
Other parents have already gathered around the building and they're crying, they're weeping, the loss of their children. The father trying to find landmarks, difficult to find. He's looking around to find landmarks and he finds one. And he, he climbs up on the side of the building, on the side where he believes his son's classroom is. He gets to the top of the pile of rubble, picks up the first piece of concrete and he throws it to the side. Five minutes, ten minutes he's there doing this. Some of the other parents after a little while say, sir, you should get down from there. They're all dead. The father doesn't pay them any mind. He keeps picking up the concrete, the glass, the, st the twisted steel, and throwing it to the side. Two or three hours later, the police, emergency services shows up. And he's still up there and they're saying, hey, sir, you should come down from there. You're going to hurt yourself. Wait until the professionals are here to do this. If you had someone in that building, they're probably already dead. Go home to whoever else you have. The father ignores them and keeps picking up the concrete and throwing it to the side. After another little while, the fire rescue people come and realize how bad the building is and prioritize other buildings over it and shout to the father, you know, you ought to really be careful. Get down from there. You can be hurt. The father picks up another brick and Tosses it to the side. Six hours later, 10 hours later, 12 hours later, hands bleeding and bloody from the glass and the steel. By now, his blood sugar is low. He's a little bit woozy because he hasn't eaten. Yet he's still there, picking up the concrete and tossing it to the side. 20 hours later, 30 hours later, 36 hours later, he's still there, tired a little confused, dehydrated. He picks up a brick and, and he throws it to the side and he sees a dark opening in the ground, in, in the rubble. And he steps back and he, he yells out, Armand, Armand. A little tiny voice from inside the blackness cries out, yes, daddy. The father says, Armand, are you okay? I need to get you out of there. The little boy says, Daddy, it's okay. We're all alive in here. Some of us probably have some broken bones, Daddy, and, and we're all very hungry, Daddy. But, but I told my friends we had nothing to worry about because my daddy promised me that he was coming back to get me. Let me tell you something, church. I know this world seems terrible. I know how frustrating this world is. I know how unjust, uh, unjust the world is, how traumatic the world is, how disgusting at times this world is. It is an emotional earthquake. Scarring folk and battering folk and, and you look around and you can lose hope. But I came all the way to Cal from California to tell you that our daddy is coming to get us. You see, he promised us in his word when he dropped us off on this planet that he would come back to get us. Your job is to tell all the other children down here in the darkness that our daddy made a promise. And you don't have to worry because it won't be too long. And when he gets here, he's going to take us home. This message was presented at the Amen Missions 2017 Bible Conference Shaken but not forsaken in Cape Town, South Africa. Amen Missions, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, is a youth-led ministry seeking to inspire young people to be Bible-based, mission-focused, and Christ-centered Christians. Our aim is to assist in taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the world in this generation, starting in South Africa. For more resources like this, or to find out how to support this work, Visit us at www.amen-missions.co.za Amen. Advent message to every nation. This recording was produced by the Preparation Ministry.